0: Hi, my name is Alan. Thank you for checking out our sermon video series. Right now, we're in a series of lessons called The Q. And what we're talking about is the questions that Jesus asks. This week, what we're looking at is a question that Jesus actually asks a couple different people a couple of different times in Scripture. The question is this, what do you want me to do for you? Now, that seems like a simple question on his face, Right. But actually, it's not always an easy question to answer. Because it it kind of triggers, if it does for you like it does for me, it triggers an internal question. And that question is, what do I want Jesus to do for me? What do I want? Have you ever noticed how easy it is to answer that question when nobody's really asking it? But the minute someone asks you, what do you want? You end up feeling like this little guy. What do I want? For instance, have you ever gone out to eat? You're really hungry. You're sitting at a restaurant. You're looking at a six-page menu, and you can't figure out what it is that you want. The waiter or waitress keeps coming and asking, and you keep sending them back because you need more time. My wife says it would be a lot easier for us if there were maybe just two things on the menu. But with all those choices... Sometimes we get locked up and frozen, unable to figure out what it is we want. Or perhaps have you ever been in an argument with somebody? It's getting really heated. And someone stops and asks, what do you want? And you can't tell them. You know, I occasionally get asked to help people work through conflict. And I've seen it on more than one occasion where Things are getting heated and people are passionate, and I just ask someone, so what do you want? And they can't tell me. In the heat of the moment, they're just so worked up about trying to get their point across and make the other person understand that sometimes they can't figure out in that moment what it is that they actually want. Most of the time, what we want is what we think is going to, at least on some level, make us happy. But even that isn't all that easy to figure out, is it? Even when we think we know what we want, it doesn't always make us happy. I found this article, it was put out by Psychology Today, November 19th of 2017, and the title of the article was, You Don't Know What You Want. And I found this quote in the article. It says, research indicates humans are bad at predicting what will make them happy. Is that actually a surprise to any of us? Probably not. I mean, think about it. How many people buy things that they don't need? Or they start or end relationships. They think these things are going to make them happy, and then they find out afterwards it really didn't make them happy. I also found another quote from a guy named Don Harold. And he said this, Unhappiness is not knowing what we want and killing ourselves to get it. How many times do we kill ourselves pursuing things we think will make us happy, and in the end we find out it didn't work? So let me ask you this. When was the last time you asked somebody, I'm sorry, when was the last time someone asked you, what do you want? I bet your answer was influenced largely by where you were and who you were talking to, who it was that was asking. I'm guessing the last time that you answered that question might have been at a restaurant. And I doubt that you told the waiter or the waitress your deepest wish list, mostly because that's really not what they're asking you for. And also because they really, if it's not on the menu, they probably don't have much of a shot at making that wish list come true. But what if you were talking to a genie? What would you ask for? This mythical being comes out of a bottle with all this power to grant wishes. What would you ask for? Would it be something big? I bet it would. A long time ago, I heard a joke. I hope you haven't heard it so that it's fresh for you. But it goes this way. A guy is walking along the beach, finds a bottle. Pulls the cork, out comes a genie. He gets all excited and says, so you're a genie, right? Genie says, yep. So do I get three wishes? Genie says, no, I work for a union. We just grant one wish, so you better make it a good one. And the guy goes, well, let me think, let me think. He starts trying to figure out what it is he wants. He says, I know, I know what I want. I've always, I I love my wife dearly, and I've always wanted to take her on a vacation to Hawaii. Hawaii. But the problem is, is we're both scared to death to fly, and we get seasick like crazy, so there's never been a way to get there. So here's what I'd like for my one wish. I'd like for you to build us a bridge from the mainland all the way to Hawaii, how about that? The genie slaps his hand and goes, are you out of your mind? Do you have any idea how complicated, how difficult, nearly impossible that wish would be to grant? I mean, you got trenches, you got waves. Come on, dude. Can you come up with something else that you really want? So the man stops and he thinks about it for a minute. and He said, well, like I said, I really love my wife, but as much as I love her and respect her, I've never been able to figure out how she thinks. I mean, her mind is sort of a mystery to me. I guess it's kind of true for all women. I mean, I do something I think is going to make her happy. It makes her upset. I try to do something it always backfires. So if I can't take her to Hawaii, I guess what I really, really like is the ability to understand the mind of a woman, to understand how she thinks and to relate to how she feels and to figure out and anticipate where her thoughts are going. How about that? The genie takes a deep breath and goes, so that bridge, you want that two lanes or four? See, my point is, If you're standing in front of somebody with some power to grant something magnificent, you're going to ask for something really big, right? Well, Jesus isn't a genie, but listen to what he says. In John 14, verses 13 through 14, he says this, I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Almost sounds like a genie, doesn't it? The difference is Jesus is real. Genies are just made-up fictional characters. See, this is great news. Jesus is asking you, what do you want me to do for you? So what do you want? What do you want to ask Jesus for? I hope it's something big. Now, Jesus asks this question a lot in Scripture several different people, and several different times. But here's the thing I found as I was studying out for this lesson. He doesn't always say yes. In fact, if you look at Mark chapter 10, you're going to find two examples where Jesus asks the question, what do you want me to do for you? And he answers it two different ways. In one case, he says no. In another case, he says yes. So let's read those and see what we can figure out about it. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 35, we'll go to verse 38. It says there, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. So James and John, apostles of Jesus, come to him and ask him to do something for them, and Jesus says no. And just eight verses later in verse 46, we'll read through verse 52, they run into another guy and Jesus asks the same question, but this time he says yes. Let's read it. Verse 46, then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. Here it is. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Jesus says, go, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received a sight and followed Jesus along the road. So, these are the same question, different people, and different responses. Why do you think Jesus said yes to Barnabas, but no to James and John? One of the things I can point out right at the top is it wasn't because of politics, personal merit, or personality. When it comes to politics, you may or may not have known this, James and John were commercial, were commercial fishermen, and they also had some political connections. In fact, in John 18, about verse 15, you'll find that John knew the high priest, and whenever Jesus was under arrest and under trial, John was allowed to go into the inner courtyard while Peter had to stay outside. So James and John, they were well known, and they had some political connections, but that didn't persuade Jesus to say yes to what they asked. And it wasn't personal merit. I mean, think about it. These guys were hand-picked apostles of the Lord. And they had been with him for a couple of years now, learning from him, working with him, working for him. They had done all kinds of things in his name. And yet Jesus didn't say yes because of all the brownie points that they had scored working for him. And it wasn't about personality In John 13, verse 23, chapter 19, verse 26, chapter 21, verse 7, John is described as the disciple that Jesus loved. So even though these guys had personal merit and they had politics on their side and they even had that personal connection with Jesus, Jesus still said no to what they asked for. Now, on the other hand, you look at Barnabas And this guy is a serious nobody. I mean, he wasn't even important enough to be remembered by his own name. You do know that Bartimaeus isn't his name. The way that they spoke, they would say, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar-Jonah meant son of Jonah, so Simon, son of Jonah. Bartimaeus is Bar-Timaeus. He was just known as Timaeus' kid. This guy is a serious nobody. And yet Jesus says yes to him. You want some good news? Jesus doesn't play favorites. You don't, have to be an impossible, uh, you don't have to be an apostle or important to anyone else in this world for Jesus to do something for you. Bartimaeus, a no-name nobody begging at the side of the road, was important to Jesus, and so are you. So what's the difference? Why the difference between James and John and their request and Bartimaeus and his? Well, the main difference that I think I see, sorry, I just touched my microphone. I hope it didn't make too much noise. The main difference I think I see is motives. Jesus said James and John didn't know what they were asking for. Mark 10, 38. How was it that after all this time in ministry... Walking with Jesus and serving him, being a part of his kingdom movement, how is it that they, would ask, they wouldn't know what to ask for? Well, they asked for the wrong thing because they had mixed motives. They were definitely about the kingdom of God, but they also had some self-promotion and selfish ambition going there. You want to know how to get Jesus to say no when you ask him for something? Ask for the wrong motives. James 4 3 says it this way When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Do you think James and John thought being in charge would make them happy? Maybe. Maybe they just thought that they were the most competent and the most able to do a good job. Maybe they just wanted to be recognized and noticed and appreciated. Whatever it was, it wasn't the right thing to ask. It was asked for with mixed motives. Now, Bartimaeus, on the other hand, had pure motives. See, he just wanted to be a part of what Jesus was doing. And you can see his motives for asking for his sight because of what he did when he received it. He didn't say, wow, finally, I get to go look at those dancing girls they've been talking about. Instead of that, he followed Jesus. He wanted to see what Jesus was going to do next. So here's some, some good things I pick up out of this. Jesus will not give us what wouldn't be good for us or for his kingdom, and praise God for that. But he will say yes when he asks him like Bartimaeus did. So in John fourteen fourteen, Jesus said, you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. And as we've just seen, He's giving you the ability to, he's asking you what you want him to do for you, but he doesn't always say yes. So that leaves us with this question. How can you get Jesus to say yes? Well, I've got three things that I, I think tell us something about how we can get Jesus to say yes. The first one is, you got to start with a pure heart. James 4, 8 through 10 says, Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So the place to start is with a pure heart, but that begs a couple more questions. First one is, what is a pure heart and how can you get a pure heart? Well, the easiest way for me to understand what a pure heart actually is is to look at what its opposite is. The opposite of a pure heart is a mixed heart. So you won't purify your heart by trying to empty out all the impurities and get all the bad stuff out. Instead, you purify your heart by filling it with God. Now, to try and help this make sense, I'm going to attempt a visual illustration. So if you'll pardon me. What I have here in this glass is 100% pure honey. How do I know it's 100% pure honey? Because that's what it says on the bottle where I got it. 100% pure honey. I bought it knowing that the only thing in this bottle was honey. Nothing else. No artificial sweeteners, preservatives, any of that other stuff. Just 100% pure honey. And I poured it into this glass. But you can see that the glass is not completely full. So it is pure But there's a gap. Whenever your heart isn't completely full of love for God, it gives a chance for other things to creep in. Might have been what happened to James and John. So to give you an idea of what that might look like, let's add a little bit of milk. We're going to fill this glass up, what's rest of it, with milk. Okay, so now what you have is what a mixed heart would look like to God. There's so much good stuff in here. This love for God comes all the way up to here, but there's also some other mixed motives in there. So now how do we get the mixed motives out and get a pure heart like James is telling us to do? Well, there's a couple of ways people try. I could simply pick up the glass and turn it over and try to dump out the milk, but guess what? There's going to be that empty space and other things are going to pour back in. Have you ever given up something bad only to replace it with something else that was bad? And we struggle with that. So what's the key to having a pure heart? I think it's pure and simple that we just fill it with more of God, more love for Him. So I'm going to attempt this and let's see what happens. So I start adding more of God to my heart, and guess what happens? All of a sudden, the milk starts getting pushed out. And it's more and more of a pure heart because there's less and less of anything else. There's just no room for any milk whenever you fill up your heart with this honey. See where I'm going with that? Actually, the difference between trying to attack all your weaknesses and your sins and your bad habits... And just trying to focus on filling your heart with God is like the difference between trying to run from something and trying to run to something. You're always more motivated and in a much stronger position when you're running towards something that you want than you are when you're trying to run away from something that you want. In Matthew 22, 37, Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. The honey in your heart is love for God. When you love God that way, it'll push out all the other things. It'll purify your heart. And guess what the result will be? He will lift you up. You see, when you humble yourself enough to purify your heart, the Lord will lift you up. And when you ask Him to do something for you with that kind of a pure heart, He will say yes. Second thing I can... Point two, how can we get Jesus to say yes, is for us to choose to take pleasure in the Lord. Where do I get that idea? From Psalm 34, 7. It says it this way. Take pleasure in the Lord, and he will grant your heart's desires. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. Okay, another question that that verse brings up is, what does it mean to take pleasure In the Lord. Well, I was actually searching on the internet, looking at how other people answer that question, and I came across a website called workingmomsbalance.com. And the author there, I thought, had a great answer. Uh, And she said this in her article. She said, when I take delight in my children, when I take pleasure in my children, I spend time with them. I watch the things they do. I notice who they are. I notice their features and character. I laugh at the funny things they do. I hold them close. I talk with them. I listen to them. I recognize the unique things about them that make them who they are. I think about them often. I focus on the great things about them that I love. I remember the words they've said that melt my heart, the great memories we've created together, and the times when we overcame something challenging together. See, she was drawing a comparison and learning from what she already understood to get a hold of something that she was wanting to get a hold of and understand. And if she takes pleasure in her children and it looks like this, what would it be like to take pleasure in God? Wouldn't it look the same? And she had this couple of questions that I just, I couldn't, not bring them up because I thought they were good questions. She says, that, she says, what if we looked to God as our main source of pleasure? What if we stopped trying to find joy or create joy or choose joy and simply spent more time with the source of all joy? I think what would happen is what we read in verse 5 there in Psalms. We would be committing our way to the Lord. We would trust in him, and guess what he will do? He will act. That's what the verse says. In other words, if we want Jesus to say yes, we need to take pleasure in the Lord, and he will say yes. The last one that I've got to show you, and I'm sure that there are more that we could put on this list, but we don't have forever to talk about this, so I've only got one more point to make for you that I hope is useful to you. The third one, how can you get Jesus to say yes, would be to commit to pursuing his kingdom and his righteousness above all else. This comes out of Matthew chapter six, verse 33. Jesus says there, but above all, pursue his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. We actually have an example in the Old Testament of someone who did this. Solomon. You can read about it in 1 Kings 3, verses 5 through 14. And What you'll read there is that Solomon, whenever he becomes king, he's got his focus on God's kingdom. And so he asks God for a discerning and wise heart so that he can govern well. See, he's wanting to put the kingdom of God, above his own interests. He could have asked for anything. God has the ability to grant anything, but he asked wisely. And God not only gave him what he asked for, he gave him so much more than he asked for. He gave him the things that he didn't ask for, like riches and honor. Well, that sounds a lot like what Paul says whenever he makes this statement in Ephesians 3.20. He said, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. See, It's one of the characteristics of God. Whenever you've got a pure heart, when you take pleasure in him, and when you have committed yourself to pursuing his kingdom and his righteousness, he's not only going to say yes to the things you ask him for, but he's going to do even more than you can think to ask of or even imagine him doing. But we only talked about one half of this kingdom and righteousness. We talked about kingdom. What does it mean to pursue his righteousness above all else? Well, righteousness defined is what God requires and what pleases him. There's a story from antiquity about a proud young man who came to Socrates asking for knowledge. He approaches Socrates in his hometown and says, Socrates, I really want knowledge. So Socrates puts his hand on the young man's shoulder and walks him through the town down to the beach and about chest high out into the ocean. He says to the young man, so what is it you want? Well, I I want knowledge. So Socrates nods and puts both hands on the young man's shoulders and pushes his head down below the water. Holds him there for a minute, lets him up. The young man is confused and shaking his head and drying his eyes. He says, now, young man, what is it that you want? I want knowledge. So Socrates grabs him and shoves him under the water and holds him down a little longer this time. Lets him up. The young man is spitting. Socrates says, now, what did you want? I want knowledge. He quickly grabs him and shoves him down a third time, holds him down even longer, lets him go. The young man comes up and he anticipates what Socrates is going to ask. He says, I want air. I want air. What Socrates says was, when you want knowledge, just like you've wanted air, then you're going to have knowledge. Why do I tell you that story? When you want to please God, which is what being righteous is all about, wanting his righteousness above all else, when you want to please God the way that young man wanted air, then you're going to know what to ask Jesus to do for you. And he will do more than you can ask or imagine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for allowing us to study your word, to come to you, and to ask for things in Jesus' name. Father, it's humbling to think that Jesus would ask any of us, what do we want him to do for us? Father, it's also intimidating to know that he won't say yes to just anything and that there's a responsibility that we've got to embrace if we want him to say yes. Father, I pray that you'll help us to be a people who will ask for big things because you're a God who can do big things. But I pray that you'll give us pure motives So that we'll know what to ask for. So that we won't ask for the wrong things and be told no. But that we'll ask for the right things and be told yes. Father, I pray that you'll help us to purify our hearts. To fill it with just one thing. A passion for you. A love for you. A desire to see you lifted high and to be pleased with everything. Father, I pray that you'll help us to take pleasure in you and to enjoy your victories. Father, I I pray that you'll help us to truly be committed to pursuing your kingdom and your righteousness above all else. Father, I pray that you'll use us to change this world that we live in and put some of your good into this world. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.